1: This is producer Lan Lee welcoming you to today's Blue Barrel conversation distributed through NBN. If you want to catch all of our episodes, you can search for the Blue Barrel podcast, that's blue the color, B-E-R-Y-L, or find all of our episodes on piercelguero.com. Now, on with the show.
0: Welcome to the Blue Barrel a podcast for intelligent conversations about Buddhism, Asian medicine, and embodied spirituality. I'm your host, Dr. Pierce Salguero, a professor of Asian Studies and Health Humanities at Penn State's Abington College outside of Philadelphia. Today, I sit down with two guests, Onkham Sukhsavan and Elizabeth Elliott, to talk about community engagement and community health in Laos. We discuss how Elizabeth, as a medical anthropologist, and Uncom as a physician, work together to build trust and improve healthcare access across an ethnically and religiously diverse landscape. Along the way, we learn about Elizabeth's experience of foraging for herbs and Uncom's memories of growing up with traditional medicine in his family. If you want to learn about Buddhist treatments for snake bites and plant amulets, then this episode is for you. Please enjoy and subscribe to Blue Barrel for monthly episodes to hear from more experts on buddhist medicine and related topics i'm here with elizabeth elliott and with income suksavan and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the blue barrel podcast thanks for being here with us today this is the first time we've had two guests on the podcast at the same time. I'm looking forward to chatting with you two. And there's so many intersections between the two of you and what you're working on that I'm really looking forward to exploring. And as this podcast is in the middle of a season where we're talking about all kinds of different connections between Buddhism and health or healthcare, care. And uh, two of you have very interesting vantage points to talk about that's different than what we've heard so far. Why don't we just start with each of you just telling our audience who you are and what your professional position is, what you're, what you're doing these days, and why you might know something about Buddhism and health.
2: So my name is Elizabeth, and I'm a medical anthropologist. I have been in Laos or working in Laos on and off for the last 10 years or so. I did my PhD on traditional medicine in Laos with traditional healers, and I also work as an anthropologist within public health, so I've been working with various organizations. And most recently, especially during COVID-19 with WHO and working very closely with the Lao government to develop community engagement initiatives for essential healthcare and also COVID-19 responses with emphasis on trust building. Yeah,
0: great. Thank you. And uh, Unkam, you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? I am Unkam Sukhavan, a
3: freelance consultant who's doing consultancies for different development organizations, providing technical support to those organizations and their government partners. I grew up in one village in Southwestern district, situated along the Mekong River, which is about 20 kilometers from the central Vientiane capital. I went to University of Health Sciences in Laos and did my master's degree in health social science in Thailand. I ever worked for the government in 1995 and resigned in 1996. Since then, I have been working with different international organizations across the different sectors in development.
2: Do you want to clarify that you're also a doctor in Kamui? or oh, you don't want to mention that so much. He's very humble about it, but he is actually a, me- a medical doctor.
3: Yeah, and I think the qualification as a medical doctor as a society, I still think the knowledge we have is very limited to apply in the development field. I would say that whatever we learn from universities, is very
0: little applied to the local context. So how did you two meet and start working together?
2: So basically in the middle of the pandemic, I had the chance to start working from a public health perspective on COVID responses through community engagement. And in the very beginning of this, we were developing a research initiative with Laos students and emphasizing like ethnographic research, developing participatory methods and so on. Took them all off to the field to learn about some of the experiences of maternal and child healthcare, mothers seeking care, the experiences they were having at health centers, really learning about the importance of trust between the health sector and communities. Um, And during this time, I'm an anthropologist, so of course I work with ethnographic techniques, started to learn more about like participatory action research and so on, became really interested in that. And we started developing these kind of methods for the students, making maps, drama games, just different ways for them to really engage with communities, learn about their perspectives, which I started to see had a real impact. These are all kind of young Lao doctors and for them to actually see some of the, some of the experiences people were having in real communities to just contextualize their technical knowledge. And then after that, we, we started to think about how this could become an intervention going on. And so we thought, How can we develop further with this participatory way of engaging with communities? At that point, we knew about Uncam and we persuaded him. We tried very hard to persuade him to come work with us. Finally, he agreed. And together, we started to develop a community engagement workshop. This time, I remember it was lockdown, right? We had our lockdown during April 2021. It was incredibly hot. We were all stuck at home. And I remember having these long phone calls with Uncam talking about these sort of ideas for activities and brainstorming over how we could start developing these workshops, which was also done really closely together with a lot of government partners in the Ministry of Health, National Tropical and Public Health Institute, Mother and Child Health Centre. So a really like, interesting and participatory way to co-develop the workshops we were doing. And Uncam was, with all of his experience working with communities, was such a key part of that. So I'll hand it over to you, Income.
3: Yeah, also I have had some experiences in community engagement, but COVID-19 is a new challenge. As Elizabeth said, we have learned to research and together with the government partners, and we look at what we have learned and to share what we can go about for COVID-19 responses and beyond because the challenge is not only from COVID-19, but it's access to essential healthcare services, you know, for pregnant women or for children to get vaccines in a regular basis. So we try to work together to increase service uptake through trust building and hostivity seeking. And at the same time, communities have more ownership on, on their health.
0: So I think a lot of what the two of you are talking about is your work that you're doing with the Connect Initiative through the WHO. But I think what our listeners will be interested in is having more of a wide ranging conversation about traditional medicine and the role of Buddhism in healthcare and public health in Laos more generally. So I'm wondering if we could pivot over to talking about some of your other work. Maybe Elizabeth, you can tell us a little bit about your PhD research, your background as a medical anthropologist. I'm curious how somebody like yourself gained access to all these villages in rural Laos and how that unfolded for you and how you built trust with those communities.
2: Sure. So I think a little bit like yourself, Pierce, I actually began as a practitioner. So I studied Chinese medicine as my first degree. And at this time, I, I didn't know anything about anthropology or social sciences, really. But in our final year, We did an internship in Beijing, based in a Chinese medicine hospital. And I think what really fascinated me at this time was just the the way that people behaved and the way that they approached healthcare. And then I started to learn a little bit and I discovered that what I was really interested in was this thing called medical anthropology, which was so much around culture, healthcare, society, politics, like all of these sort of things that go into people's experiences of healthcare. So eventually after that, I came more into a kind of Southeast Asian perspective. I also went came well, here to Chiang Mai, actually, to study Thai massage and practice for a while. And then this all kind of came together when I studied my PhD. I, I don't think I'd ever been to Laos. I didn't know much about it, but it seemed to make sense to me. It was surrounded by all of these different medical influences, China, Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam. And yet there was so little that I could find on it. There was so little research. And yet I also knew it has this kind of huge biodiversity, very rural population. So it seemed like the perfect place to come and study traditional medicine. And I think what's really interesting about Laos is that there's so little in terms of written text, both research text, but also medical text, that you don't have anything like in Thailand or India or China, these sort of medical canons with codified forms of medicine. You know, you have the odd book here or there, but it's all very heterogeneous. It's collections of prescriptions, you have palm leaf manuscripts that were traditionally kept in temples, but yeah, it's all very heterogeneous and localised in terms of these being the kind of collection of different lineages of knowledge. So when I first came here, especially after being in China and Thailand, I thought, what is that? Like, where is the traditional medicine here? I was completely confused by it. And then I gradually started to see that actually it really is everywhere. You just have to start to look under the surface a little bit. And because there, there hasn't been this kind of standardised, kind of nationalised medical tradition created in the way that there has been in some other countries because of that, but in tandem with that, there is still a lot of rural and individual and local medical traditions r- remaining. So after lots of stops and starts and freaking things out, I eventually managed to partner with a University of Health Sciences here and got to the south of Laos in Champasak. And then I was really lucky to meet the traditional medicine department there who just have a few people. It's a very tiny department. I worked with an elderly doctor there in the traditional medicine department who trained during the revolutionary era. There was a lot of traditional medicine being used. He he had this kind of great enthusiasm for plants, for traditional medicine, for the, the countryside. And so we set off around the province together, interviewing different traditional healers in different villages. And by the end of this, I went back a few times. I think we interviewed something like 35 different healers in their home villages. So I started to kind of learn a little bit about the diversity, the different practices, and also the fact that this was such a fast declining tradition, almost everyone was over 60 years old. They were mostly elderly men. Knowledge was not being transmitted to their children most of the time. So you really start to see like the urgency of documenting some of this work. And so I eventually met two people um, po and nuang and. I'd done in two different districts and said to them, could I come here? Can I learn with you? And they were like super welcoming, really happy, very open-minded, just glad that I was interested in learning. And went through the kind of long and painful process of getting to the point where I was allowed to stay in the village by myself. And in reality, they put me in all sorts of places. You know, I slept in a hospital for a while, in a dormitory with doctors and nurses, in different places in the village. At one point, one of the healers even he said, oh, you like the medicine, so just sleep there with all the plants. So it was a lot of kind of twists and turns for getting there, which I think really broadened my experience because I also got to learn something about the biomedical field as well, and just some of the experiences of, for example, of like young doctors and nurses living in rural areas. And everything I learned, I really learned just through talking to them and learning from their perspective, rather than comparing it to some kind of scholarly canon of a traditional medicine. It was really starting from zero in a very kind of traditionally anthropological way of of learning about how they saw things, what were their particular methods, what were their particular herbal prescriptions. so it was a really immersive way, I guess, starting to understand some of those kind of life worlds of both from the healers' perspectives, but also the people seeking care. What were they looking for? What had they been to? One of the healers had a sort of little sort of treatment house he built opposite his house and he had people with mostly with quite chronic diseases staying there. And so I'd often just go and talk to them and just really started to learn about these very complex treatment seeking journeys they'd been on and why they'd ended up there and what it was about the whole kind of process of traditional medicine that was effective for them. And then during that time, I also went to the forest, collected plants. Another challenge in Laos is that there's not much in the way of botanical texts, So you you can't, like in Chinese medicine, for example, you can take the vernacular name and pretty accurately correlate it with the botanical name. But in Laos, you really can't do that because A, there's not that much literature. B, there's so much diversity around plant naming. Laos is already like incredibly ethnically diverse. I mean, I work just with Lao speakers, but even within different areas, of the country, different people, they call plants by different names and so on. So really the only way to know, I mean, at least according to Latin binomials, it, to, what the plant is, is to take it to a herbarium and get it identified. So it's was, it was a very kind of laborious process. I'm definitely not cut out to be a botanist, but I felt that it was really important to bring plants into the process because it was like working with plants is such a window in, into just understanding how people think about health. You know, especially in rural Laos, people have such a strong feeling for plants. Everyone has a garden a lot of Lao food has a lot of different wild plants and and so i often found that i would say to people tell me what you know about traditional medicine and they would say no no i don't know anything and then you have lunch with them you go for a walk together and then they say oh this plant is good for this and this one it's for fever and so it's all of these other kind of windows into knowledge and the way people thought about plants and thought about health started to open up as well
0: yeah, yeah, great. Your dissertation eventually captures all of this. And I think in a very detailed and sensitive way, it paints the, what you call the landscape of healing in Lao, which includes all of these different kinds of healers and different kinds of social positions, and then all of the ways that they navigate the actual landscape and gather medicines and how the medicines wind up circulating through these spaces as well. So... Elizabeth, just for our listeners, can you quickly give us a a sense of the Lao landscape? And also just to appreciate the ethnic diversity of Lao. It's just a relatively small country with just literally dozens of different ethnic groups, speak different languages, different cultures, different clothing, obviously different medicinal knowledge.
2: So Lao is a landlocked country. It has land borders with China in the north, with Thailand, with Myanmar and Cambodia and Vietnam, so it's really the sort of crossroads or linking point between these surrounding countries, and there was also there was of course a lot of historical trade routes going through this area. But geographically, it's a very mountainous country, and you have the Mekong River, which runs from north to south. That's a mostly lowland area, which has traditionally been the the paddy rice cultivation area and also home to the ethnically Lao people from the Lao Thai ethnic linguistic group who primarily speak Lao. In the northern area of the country, it's very mountainous and also along the eastern border towards Vietnam and the highlands of the south. And within these areas, again, there's a, yeah, there's a lot of mixing of different ethnic groups, four major kind of ethno-linguistic categories are the Lao Thai, then you have the Khmer groups, the Hmong or the hmong Mian groups, and then the Sino-Tibetan groups. And then the Hmong and the Sino-Tibetan tend to be more in the northern areas of the country.
0: It seems like your story, this long winding road that you took and all these different kinds of places that you wound up sleeping and people that you interacted with really observing all of these different facets of the Lao healthcare landscape, that you got to see everything from the inside in that way.
2: I think it's an interesting thing when you're, especially when you're a PhD student and an anthropology PhD, it's like the thing of being unimportant in the sense that you can just be in the background, right? In anthropology, it's also power relations are obviously always a huge issue and there's always going to be a power hierarchy. There's always going to be the danger of exploiting people. You know, you've always got to be aware of your positionality. But I think going through that process really helped me work with that differential Because I was working in like not my own language. I was trying to study a medical tradition I knew nothing about. I I was just hanging around. I was sleeping on the floor somewhere. And so I really learned the value of just not being important, of being the person in the background who's just, you're just there and then (laughs) so much happens. And if you're not there, you don't know, right? You don't know that people, somebody turned up at six o'clock in the morning for, you know, for medical treatment.
0: So on that note, let me ask you and correct me if I'm saying something wrong, but you are a white British woman with red hair. And what I'm curious about is the difference maybe between Lao and Thailand, because I know for a fact that in Thailand, there are various government policies that actually restrict the teaching of traditional medicine to foreign people.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I'd say it's almost the opposite, actually. There are no sort of large scale training schools. There's no kind of government regulation around either how traditional medicine is practiced. There is around production of medicines, but not around the practice. And because I focused mainly on plant knowledge and particularly damla, the medicinal prescriptions, this is something which can be fairly openly shared. It doesn't have a kind of a prohibition in terms of the practitioner's status, whether they've been spiritually initiated and so on. But I think now because the concern about knowledge loss is so much greater than the concern about knowledge stealing. And so what, actually what I found was they really welcomed, particularly the healers that I work with, they really wanted more research. They wanted their work recorded. They wanted it documented. And I never had any issues with that at all. I think that says something about Lao people. It w- probably would have been different depending on the ethnic group that I worked with, but certainly among the Lone and Lao and the specific healers that I worked with. It was different. It depends on the category. I and mean, if you go into things which are more under classified as magical knowledge, which require an initiation process, then of course I was always really careful. And they were careful what to share with me, but that was more for a kind of concern around safety. You know, was that putting you at risk? of spirit possession or madness or all the kind of issues that people talk around if you use certain practices without being initiated and without kind of following certain prohibitions. But the concern about that was not really about knowledge, but it was about safety in a sense. And so it is not a a controversial subject to work on. I think people were more worried just about me staying on my own in, in a village. That's what they were worried about.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think in Thailand, it's really about, it's a question of IP and it's either other practitioners are going to steal the secrets of this particular lineage or something like that. But then there's also a concern at the national level of foreign pharmaceutical companies acquiring Thai plants mm-hmm. or patents for Thai plants. Yeah, so it's inter- interesting the differences there. And uh, in Unkam, this makes me want to ask you about how Buddhism influences public health and healthcare more generally.
3: Yeah, I think I see them in parallel, actually. A lot of people, one day they go to, to get treatment from health facilities, they also go to get the psychological healing from temples as well. They go to meet monks and they invite monks to do some kind of ritual. I don't know how to explain, but it really gives rise to better feeling, speciality, and people feel better. Since we believe in karma, and the karma really helps people calm people down and to accept what was happening to them. And this belief in karma is the is a call for people, you know, they can accept, they can learn how to live with the disease. For example, cancer, when they are in a terminal state, for example, they go to the temple and meet with a monk who they trust, and then they they get advice about karma, and everything happens now is because of the previous action, the previous karma. So these kind of things helps a lot. Psychologically, and people can can die peacefully, I would say. This is what I can think of. Yeah.
0: And Elizabeth, I'm wondering if you had any examples from your fieldwork that you wanted to bring up about that.
2: It's a very complex picture. And and of course, when we talk about the term Buddhism, it it actually refers to such a kind of a broad spectrum of practices and beliefs and approaches. In the south of Lao, I have to say that I found that people's experiences with the spirit world seemed to influence them, I would say, perhaps more than Buddhism, in the sense of how they understood the cause of disease, the kind of underlying reasons for ill health, the kind of things that we people feared or had to protect or guard themselves against but Buddhist practices are often the remedy to that and it's interesting that monks will also treat spirit possession for example and I mean they yes it's Buddhist in the sense that it often comes through the monastic line and there are not that I know of that many monks now practicing medicine I think there were many there are a lot more in the past now you find it from time to time in some temples but much much less commonly so I didn't interact especially, and also I think being a woman is also a more complex issue. But in terms of their actual practices, I mean, if you look at some of the principles of how their medicine worked and how it was effective, really draws on the complexity of the local cosmologies, especially in the south of Lao, where you have, as so you say, animism, Theravada Buddhism. The Khmer influence, the sort of underlying kind of Hindu or what you might call kind of Brahmic practices. So it's like a, on the one hand, I don't want to use the word synergistic or the sort of very layered or full picture of the sort of religious or spiritual backdrop. But in terms of how the healers practice, they use Buddhist principles to protect them. And so it's really important for, or at least particularly the Moya that I worked with in general, that they are practicing That they follow certain precepts, both the basic five precepts, but also other ones that apply to monks, that they don't charge money for their medicines, that they they are certain kind of regulating principles in the way that they treat people and the way they collect plants and so on. But in order to protect them, to protect them from harm, to protect them from attack by spirits, by sorcery sorts of kind of spiritual dangers they, they had to morally and ethically regulate their practice through certain Buddhist principles so the way that I see it fitting together
1: families have a lot going on let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up like delicious lolly focus pops or lolly mellow pops for kids and for parents try three new brainy chews to help you focus chill out or get energized Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at Ollie.com. That's oll dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
0: Yeah, thanks. So, um... So Mo Ya yeah, is like uh herb doctor, an herbal doctor, right? So I, I guess I, I should mention that I published a book called Traditional Thai Medicine, Buddhism, Animism, Yoga, Ayurveda in 2016 that talks about the multi-layered nature of Thai medicine, including a range of all sorts of different healers and practices, some of which comes from Buddhism, some of which comes from from Khmer medicine, from local or indigenous plant knowledge. Some of it comes from India and it's all mixed together in a way that maybe is somewhat similar to Lao, although it does seem like Thailand's a little bit more stratified from our conversation today.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's a really difficult question to answer is how much does Buddhism or underlying Buddhist approach, is it really both health but the way in which people interact with each other? And the other day I was asking one of our team members, who's a younger woman in our team, who... I know that her Buddhist practices are very important for her and very stabilizing. And I said, when we work in communities, like, what does it give to you or what does it mean to you, like, to be a Buddhist in that situation? Bearing in mind that Laos is in just such extreme diversity, so many different ethno-linguistic groups, different religions, different ritual practices and so on. As you say, even with Buddhism in different parts of the country, it's just... Yeah, it's very hard to draw out some kind of underlying principle there. But what I thought was interesting that when I, maybe you can say more about this from his perspective, I said to her, so when you work with people in community, because in in communities we, we work a lot, for example, with pregnant women, mothers, quite vulnerable populations, also with village authorities, with local government as well, and also healthcare staff too. So it's bringing a lot of people together and people who might, Not necessarily always have the best relationship, who have different priorities, they have different approaches. And to try and move towards a shared idea, so it's like, so so what is community health? Was it really mean? to you, for people in your village, in your community, to to be healthy, to live well. And again, that, of course, that brings up different perspectives. And I asked her in that situation, how does Buddhism help you? And the first thing she said was really to be able to listen to people, to be mindful when listening to them, to actually hear what they're saying without immediately imposing our own perspective on that. So actually to be able to just be present with people. So that's the first thing she emphasized. And the second thing she said was, well, I don't see myself as being different from them. Again, of course, there's always going to be this power issue. There's always going to be different levels of privilege and so on. But what she, Because she didn't see herself as different from the people she was with and they felt that. And so then when she was together with them, there was this you know, really nice sense of kind of trust, of kind of sharing and so on and people also I know because I've been in a lot of villages with her but people always really point this out and, and remark on it and they just really appreciate her being there with them I think because she has this ability to just be present and just really be with people and in our team we came up with a principle of listening to feelings trying to really understand the perspective of the other person in, in kind of a deep way and I think it's very interesting working with local government as well in that perspective because so often there isn't really the space for that and of course it's very apparent and and I think what's been really interesting about the work uh, that our team has been doing together with the government is showing that actually by listening to people, by really trying to understand where they're coming from, it doesn't impose upon them a version of health or healthcare which is entirely alien. And if that can become more systemic or within the system, then, yeah, there's a real kind of potential for like growth and change there as well.
0: So Unkam, I wanted to ask you, so Elizabeth just told us that when she went to Laos, she went looking for traditional medicine, originally didn't see it anywhere, but then discovered actually traditional medicine is everywhere across the culture and all these different places, all these different ways. And so I'm wondering for you, when you were growing up, did you remember traditional medicine being a part of your childhood, a part of your family life? Was it something that you grew up knowing something about and sharing with your family and your community?
3: Yeah, based on what Elizabeth shared with us, that is trickling me back to when my father used the guava leaves for my diarrhea, and, and my grandfather also used herbs to treat people who, who were bitten by snakes and these kind of things. I remember that when people got bite by snakes and when they went to local hospitals, they were always referred to my grandfather, you know, to heal. I remember that, and when I'm doing consultancy work and I visited ethnic minority, ethnic communities, and I also come across a lot of beliefs, plans that local people really have their own wisdoms to really deal with the illness and things. I can give you an example. I remember when I, I was doing community engagement in the ACA community, and we organized activities like competition between the Haka women and and the outsiders, like the district and provincial government staff activity or game, and we asked them to go into the forest and collect some plants, edible, or some plants that identify as the traditional medicines. And they went into the forest for about one hour and the group of Akka women collect about hundred times of plants and edibles and traditional medicines to treat a certain illnesses, and diarrhea or back pain and, or even the, they call uh, genital discharge. You know, they describe it, even they're not really traditional healers, all, but they know that very well, that's why they can survive on at areas, doesn't have any Health facility at that time I couldn't imagine if one has a appendicitis, for example, in any case of emergency, how they could carry the ill person to a health facility for treatment. Given that knowledge, that's why they are so wise, living in very remote community just come back to, you know, that, that kind of competition and uh, a group of staff just collected bamboo shoots, a couple of things, and they <laughs> compare to what the villagers know and the outsider
0: knows. It's very
3: interesting to see.
0: Yeah. 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 Thanks. So, um, for our listeners who may not be so familiar with Southeast Asia, just to mention that you talked about the Aka women and that's a, an ethnic group, uh, sometimes called Hill Tribe group in Southeast Asia that spans across Thailand and Laos and other other countries in the region. And yeah, the story that you're telling about, you know, the kind of a meeting between two different ethnic groups coming together and sharing their medicinal knowledge is, I think, really interesting. And is that something that takes place in Laos a lot with communication back and forth between different ethnic groups about traditional medicine? Is there a lot of sharing between those groups, even across those cultural boundaries?
2: Maybe I can just add into that briefly. So I think this also ties into some of the work Unkam and I have been doing together in terms of working with communities. Because I think one thing we really fundamentally have emphasised and valued in the approach is the knowledge that people have rather than what they lack. Because I think often people... Can end up sometimes in, in terms of the kind of, the whole kind of field of development can sometimes end up like dismissing that slightly. And so I think to take the approach of saying, what are your strengths? What is your knowledge? What is your capacity? What do the old people know about? And so on, and to really try and be inclusive in that approach. But would you agree with me Income?
3: I agree. That's why, you know, we're promoting this approach, positive approach that can enable people to take more ownership since, you know, we enable them to look at positivity, rather and
0: negativity. So you mentioned that your grandfather treated you with herbs when you were sick, when you were a kid, and then also that people would refer patients to him.
3: I was quite surprised when I saw a lot of patients referred by local hospital to my grandfather and the medical staff at the hospital also trust my grandfather because of the evidence that he could save a lot of lives. And he's also very proud that villagers respect him. And the way he treated people, he gave herbs to people to eat, okay? And he kept asking whether the herbs are still bitter, why chewing, and you can sense that. At first, the herbs, it's not bitter when it's the portions in the body in that's how my grandfather tried to to explain, and then he kept giving more and more until the person feels bitter in the mouth, and then he stopped it and when he stop it and he will use he's doing kind of ritual to blow chanting and blow into the bowl of water and then he will put in his mouth and blow that holy water okay. For example if the snake bite here and he will put herb here as well and blow the water out this way, passing portion of the snake out of the body. And it depends on how portion it is. Sometimes it takes more than two hours and a few days later and the patient would come back to offer some flowers and candles and some amount of money to him. That's how (laughs) he practised healing.
2: That's so interesting and it's similar. Well, I mean, the thing around the waiting for the bitter taste in the mouth, it's the same with for malaria. Have, Have you heard about that one? A common treatment for malaria? Is the rhizome of Alocasia macrorhiza, which is in Laos, and it's a similar principle. You eat it, and then when your mouth starts itching, then it's working. So there's a kind of approach to efficacy which is based on the actual like taste or like feeling in on your mouth. And the interesting thing is that Alocasia macrorhiza is actually we did some research on anti-malarial plants in Laos, and, and that is actually one which is very widely used across the world and has ha- had really good efficacy in pharmacological studies as well. So it shows how there's, there's a lot behind these principles.
3: Yeah. And they also use one home for upset stomach and the head looks like ginger, but inside it's very green.
2: And also with the blowing. Yeah. I remember I asked um, Villas at one time, like when you blow on people, do you blow differently? And he said, yeah, for every condition, it's different kind blow blowing, the different kind of principles. And it's really around the mantra, which is used together with the blowing, which it's not mouthed. You don't hear it, but they mutter it or think it, but it's somehow it's the association of a specific mantra together with the blowing, which at least in the, the way they described to me, which gives it its effectiveness. So it's like a damla. You have the damla, the prescription of the plants, but you also have the prescription of the mantra. And then the blowing is what brings those together because you also, so as you say, blow on the plants as well, blow into the water. It's a very kind of like clear and logical system. But what's interesting is, yeah, that I always, always say to people, So you know, what do you feel like after he blows on me? And they say, oh, wow, you know, I feel really cool afterwards. It's like the pain gone. So it's like, they, of course, there's a, it's going to be a psychological element in that. But they do report an actual physical change in sensation, which is this coolness, right? The idea that the breath is cool and it has this kind of cooling effect, which I think is partly why it's used so often for these sort of very hot and poisonous things like snake bites and so on. One is a category of plants, it is usually in, they're usually in the ginger family or a similar morphology. There's quite pungent smelling tubers that kind of grow low to the ground. And some of them are used for magical purposes, some are used as medicines, but they're generally considered a, a risky category of plants. But they can also be used as spiritual protection, like you have one hom. So one hom is Campharia galanga, I think it's. Yeah, a very sweet smelling plant and people will predict in their pocket or kids wear it around their neck and lockets, it. so it's it's a protective plant and it protects you against attack by spirits or sorcerous attacks by other people but they also put it into water because it's very sweet smelling so water that's used in ritual purposes various different rituals which have this sort of cleansing purpose as well so it's a really interesting plant Yeah, but generally speaking people can be a bit scared of one and people have this reputation of if you're a person who has a specific type of one then everyone is going to be scared of you because they think that you're going to use that for, like, nefarious purposes.
3: Yes, it's related to something like magic, no?
2: I, I was just going to say, income, but I think you've I think you've really proved my point. When you ask people directly, like, oh, what do you know about traditional medicine? They say, oh, I don't know anything, I'm not an expert. And then you start to talk a little bit and dig a little bit. And it's always like this, all these stories come up about your grandfather, or a remedy that was used for this, or what you had for lunch, what you have in your garden. <laughs> this happened to me every single time. And it just made me laugh so much. Because every time I got on like the night bus from Paxo like, to Vincian, or on a tuk-tuk somewhere, and so I say, oh, what are you doing? And, oh, I'm researching traditional medicine. And then they just talk for half an hour, right? It just
3: Yeah, we we know a little bit, and we we can talk, at least we, we are asked. But of course, it's still uh, superficial, I will say that
0: yeah. And uh Unkam, I'm also curious because you're talking about the men in your family having a certain inherited medicinal knowledge. And so it makes me wonder about the the role of gender in the medical knowledge landscape. Are there particular female lineages of healers that have different kinds of knowledge? Are there just what is the role of, of gender in shaping me- medical knowledge in Laos?
3: Yeah, to my knowledge, I see more male traditional healers than women. In my home village, apart from my grandfather, perhaps Elizabeth has seen more.
2: Yeah, in terms of gender, you know, as comes said, among the Lao, it is traditionally passed down through the male side, sometimes through the family, but often or as well through an apprenticeship to a teacher, often through the monastic line as well. So a lot of the older Moya I met, had studied with a monk, or they'd been among themselves. And so the gender aspect is really bound up with Theravada Buddhism and the, some of the kind of taboos around women and so on. And so it does depend a lot on ethnicity, like some other ethnic groups like the Akka. Unka mentioned a friend of mine who also did his PhD on traditional medicine among the Akka, and you yeah, have completely the different experience that women were the shamans and the traditional medicine practitioners and among the Hmong as well, for example. So it's really dependent by ethnicity, but I think, yeah, now as, as Uncam said, because so few people are studying is shifting a bit. Healers might be more likely to teach their daughters as well. So one of the healers I studied with was teaching his daughter. And, and he said to me, really, the reason was in the past that it was just so physically difficult. You had to go into the forest, often for days at a time with just a machete. You know, there was no motorized vehicles. I mean, loud traditional medicine really relies on the roots of large trees. It's not a kind of, it's not an easy task. And so he explained to me that really that was the real reason behind it. Although other people do have kind of stronger concerns about some of the taboos around women and sort of contamination, but he, yeah, he also said to me that he thought that women had greater empathy and greater sensitivity. At least in my case, I, they, I was always really welcomed, even though, yeah, traditionally it would be a, like a man in that position.
0: So I'm wondering if you can share with us how Buddhism influenced the experience of COVID-19 in Laos, the extent to which Buddhism had a role in people's understanding of the pandemic and and people's reactions to the pandemic and the kinds of healthcare interventions that they did or didn't seek out. To what extent Buddhism was shaping that in Lao, in your experience?
3: Yeah, in cities like Vientiane, in the uh, province of Taos, where more Buddhist people and more temples here, and I think during the pandemic, I think all efforts, different sectors and I think include the monks in the temple, also try to prevent (laughs) this new disease in society and how Buddhism influences, you know, responses in a particular way or unique way, I haven't Really, see Elizabeth if you see anything in Laos.
2: Can maybe add a couple of points. And one point. Which I think is quite interesting that Unkan mentioned is just space to me that Buddhist temples are often they're often used, for example, as vaccination sites because they're like they're a flat area, they're shaded, they're a central place that people can get to. And so I think during COVID-19 that was also utilised, for example, some of our workshops were also held in temples. I mean, really from a practical purpose, as you say, because they're, you know, it's a handy location. But I think it just shows the, the importance of the temple in people's everyday lives, right? The fact that it's not just a place that you go for religious rituals and so on. But it is really a place that you use very often in, in a variety of different ways. So sort of spatially, that's one aspect of it. And I think maybe more from a psychological perspective, in Laos, there's, I'm sure the same in Thailand, but there's a common phrase like jayen, to keep a cool heart, to be patient. And in fact, I even called my thesis in a slightly tongue-in-cheek way, potent plants and cool hearts. And the fact that I was told this all the time, like jayen, jayen, you know, calm down, be patient, keep a cool heart. And it's this ability to manage uncertainty. And whether that comes from, you can denote that as being from Buddhism or not, I can't say, but I would say as an outsider in, in Laos, as an observer of Lao people, then my observation is that people have a great ability to deal with uncertainty. I think they were already much better equipped to deal with something like a, an outbreak of a new disease because it's just kind of one in a, a line of uncertain situations. But in in terms of principle of of keeping cool, of keeping calm, there's an adaptability and a flexibility to it that something comes at you and you know you find a way around it. You don't resist it. From my observation, really goes together with this principle of being patient, of keeping a sort of management of the heart. There's a very, in Lao, probably the same in Thai, there's a very wide lexicon from emotional terms and terms around mental and psychological states like much broader than English in effect, which all relate to these sort of heart terms. And I feel that I feel that in Lao there's a people have a a very strong understanding of that. And especially when I worked with elderly people. So during my research, I was really interested to hear about their perspective on life and health and aging. And I asked them, you know, what's your secret to your long life? Because you meet people who are over 80, still like super active and getting around the village and doing things. And a very common point which came up was this idea of the management of the emotional and mental self, and during COVID nineteen, we could see this, for example, when we worked with people who had to be quarantined. And of course, it puts you in a vulnerable situation that you don't necessarily have access to food, you can't carry on your farm work, and so on. But we saw some really, we saw some really interesting examples of how this support came together from what I've observed in Laos, I think people have a very strong sense of partly just from literal necessity, but on the need to be able to work together with others. Every time we work in a community setting and we undertake certain activities, it amazes me how quickly people manage to work together, figure out their roles, who's going to do this, who's going to do that. And it's something which is so inbuilt in the way in which people interact with them. I think that when COVID came, I don't want to go too much into the stereotype of like individualistic versus collectivist countries, because I think it's much more subtle than that. But people, they very quickly found new ways to adapt and new ways to work together to make the best of it, basically. Obviously, not ignoring the fact that it also brought a lot of hardship for people as well.
0: Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you for that. So are there resources for listeners who are interested in learning more about Lao medicine? Your dissertation, obviously, <laughs> yeah. if I mean, publicly <laughs> available, we'll link, we'll link to it, it in is. the show notes. Yeah,
2: it's free online. I'm also working on a, on a film at the moment as well, a documentary film. So that hopefully will be on YouTube soon once I finish making it. And that was based on particularly the two healers that I work with and also the elderly doctor I mentioned. So it's really trying to capture from their perspective and their in their words how they understand medicine, how they approach illness, some of the issues around plant conservation survival of their knowledge and so on, and a bit around their practices as well, sort of you know, walking in the woods with them, looking at them collecting plants and so on. And in, yeah, in terms of scholarly books, and the only other anthropological book is a book in French which was based on fieldwork from the 1960s by Richard Poitier who's a French anthropologist. And what's really interesting is that even though he did his fieldwork before the revolution, then actually I saw a lot of similarity between what he describes in a lot of detail, a lot of the practices that the more I use which are very similar to what I observed in the last 10 years but it's quite dense and it's in in French it's maybe not the most accessible otherwise yeah I mean for example I I would say otherwise it's really comparative works like like your work for example which was of course super useful for me during my thesis to try and think through particularly some of the like the comparative and historical issues I could give you references from other countries but not really from Laos so much
0: Great. So we'll link to your dissertation, we'll link to the book in French, and we'll also link whenever it's available to your documentary film. And that's really exciting. I'm looking forward to seeing that. I really appreciate the time that both of you spent and the time difference between where I am here in the U.S. and where you are in Southeast Asia made coordinating this a little bit difficult. And I really appreciate both of you spending this time with us and sharing your expertise and your thoughts with us. And uh, yeah, it was great to great to get to know you, Uncom. Thank you for participating. And Elizabeth, good to see you again. And uh, yeah, thank you to both of you.
2: Oh, thanks for inviting us.
0: Thank you for having me today.
1: That's it for today from us at the Blue Barrel podcast. This episode was hosted by Pierce Alguero and produced and edited by me, Lan Lee. All of our music is by Jonathan Pettit, and our interns are Ameda Ghosh and Nathan Santos. If you're listening to us on one of our partner podcasts, make sure to catch all of our episodes on piercelguero.com, or subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also support us by making a donation at patreon.com slash bluebarrel. Until next time, be happy and be well.